welcome to today's episode of Art 101, Artists on the Business of Art. If you're an artist and or have a fantasy about being one professionally, these artists will give you the inside scoop into their lives, careers, and what it's really like to make your living as a fine artist, illustrator, or artisan. Your host is award-winning illustrator and designer, Michael Gibbs. Hi, this is Hope Gibbs, founder and producer of the Incandescent Radio Network, and this is Art 101, Artists on the Real World of Art. We are here today on the campus of Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond with American illustrator and painter Sterling Hunley. He switched from a highly visible career as an illustrator to pursue personal work, and as a fine artist, he made his debut in 2009 with a solo art show entitled Emergent. It was held at Ghost Print Gallery here in Richmond, and it featured 104 new works of art, which is pretty substantial. He's currently an associate professor in the VCU Department of Communication Arts, as well as on the faculty of the Art Department, a very cool online art school dedicated to training and preparing artists for today's professional art world, all online. Actually, they have some in, some in-person classes, and we'll talk to Sterling about that, too. Um, but he's really a fan of helping students achieve their goals, so we're excited to learn more about his teaching career, his career as an illustrator and as a fine artist, his views on the world of entrepreneur as artist, which is really very fascinating, his take on that, and his goals for the future. So, Sterling, welcome to the Incandescent Radio Network. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure, and we are just really excited to learn about your success as an artist. You were immediately successful as a kid, um, and especially as a college student. So tell us how you got a jump start on the business. You know, I, I was uh, ambitious even in school, and I, I was applying to competitions. I was trying to figure out where the current information, the most relevant information, was bottlenecking. So um, I was looking to places like the Society of Illustrators in New York and uh, communication arts uh, publication, and uh, I kind of fell into making my own luck. You know, it's uh, not just being in the right place, but being in the right place all the time. I was trying to surround myself with the uh, the leaders of the, of the industry, and uh, as a result, I kind of made my way to a program called the Illustration Academy uh, for my last twelve credits for for, for <laughs> my education from VCU. Excellent. So you went to school here. You grew up in Richmond, is that right? That's correct. I was actually born in Roanoke, Virginia, and uh, moved here when I was seven. So very much a, a Virginian and a Richmonder, and uh, you know, proud, proud to call this place home. That's uh, that's very cool. Um, tell us about your the beginning. Take us back to when you were a kid. Did you always know you wanted to be an artist? My brother and I grew up in a very creative environment. Uh, my mom was an illustrator and a painter although I didn't realize until later what those things meant. My dad was a uh, very much a kind of serial entrepreneur. He started many uh, companies, some successful, some not, but uh, I think that was a pretty interesting uh, learning curve as far as ambition goes. So we had this uh, very supportive, very rich environment. I remember making everything from you know drawings of, of Superman to uh, little tennis shoes made out of paper for, for finger skateboards and uh, Batmobiles and everything else. Uh, I wrote a lot when I was a kid too. But uh, I guess the moment that I kind of remember recognizing that I had something that people reacted to, um, I was in kindergarten or first grade. My teacher asked everyone to create something for Thanksgiving. And uh, I drew a picture of an Indian and they put it up on the board. And 
Um, I remember in that moment, uh, whether it was youthful arrogance or just being a cocky young kid, um, I remember looking around and, and realizing that my drawing was better than everyone else's. And uh, so I had this assumption. And soon thereafter, the, uh, the teacher gathered the students and brought them over to my drawing and started kind of making over it. And uh, so that was the uh, assumption that I had and, and then the uh, confirmation of that assumption. In my career, it's interesting that that pattern has repeated. If I set out to accomplish something, if I set out for a goal within my work, even if it's open-ended, um, I know that I've arrived at something. I get to this assumption where I figure that I've, I feel like I've pulled these disparate pieces together and I'll, I'll have this feeling of confidence. You know, I, I just did something I was trying to do. And almost categorically, that has uh, been confirmed later on by an award or recognition or publication, someone grasping onto that, that, uh, that assumption. So tell us how that's played into your work as a teacher, knowing that as the student, the recipient of the, the accolades or the criticism, it, it goes very deep. So how does that play into how you teach your class and how you criticize or compliment your students? Yes, great question. In fact, we get very much into the very beginning. I, I teach a senior studio class where we focus on, you know, the next steps after graduation. And um, our students are very, very much across the board in communication arts, everything from illustration to painting and drawing and design and uh, images and movement. Um, so we, uh, we have to kind of stay abreast of, of what's current with technology and trends in the industry. I can't do that alone, even though I'm very much a working practitioner, um, I can't stay aware of everything that's happening. So I charge the students with, uh, with that. I, I ask them to keep me informed and, and help me stay relevant through what they bring to class. So every class begins with the question, what's new and interesting in the world? And from there, we kind of uh, have an open dialogue and then we jump into what they're working on. All of that goes into informing who they are as artists and as visual communicators. Um, I don't think that you can be relevant yourself as a practitioner if you're not aware of what's going on in the world. So um, I, I try to force them to bring me something. Otherwise, it's a very silent class at the beginning. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah, it, it, it informs what they do. We start with, uh, with industry. We start with technology. We start with communication. And we start to look at that as a problem to solve. Once they realize that their lives are problems to solve, they can start breaking it down into um, smaller parts that they can then approach and attack. Can you give us an example of a current assignment that kids are working on? Well, I don't give assignments. Okay. Yeah, it, it's more, okay, let's do a lot of writing. Um, what industry do you want to be a part of? Now, you always start with the example, okay, so you want to be the most successful artist who's ever lived. Great, I totally support you. But what does that mean? How do you define that? And, okay, well, before I'm the most successful illustrator that has ever lived, you have to be aware of art history. You have to be aware of where trends are going. Um, so you can't just make a statement like that without making it quantifiable. Then we get into, well, before that happens, you have to become, you know, the most successful current artist. What does that mean? And uh, how do you define that? What industry are you looking at? And we start to go through this process backwards. It's almost like solving a maze backwards. It's always easier than starting from the middle and working your way out. And uh, we, we, we touch on, okay, well, before that happens, Obviously, you have to be highly exhibited, highly uh, awarded. You have to have patrons. You have to all, have all these things that happen uh, in sequence. It trails all the way back to that first time that someone sees your work and reacts to it. 
And before that happens, you have to have a portfolio, you have to have a body of work, you have to have, you know, dare I say, the product that you're selling before you can sell it. And um, I think students want things too quickly. Mm -hmm. I think people uh, everywhere want things to happen so fast. They don't realize that it's just a lot of passion, a lot of belief in yourself and pushing through what other people would perceive as walls where it's just like, that's just another problem to solve. How do I work around it or through it or under it or you know, to the side of it or with it more importantly? I love that. And that's actually how, that's my philosophy about business and entrepreneurship. So let's talk about the artist as entrepreneur. What does that mean to you? Well, it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about with uh, the notion of awareness of what's happening. We uh, live in a day and a time where everyone is a consumer. I mean, we always have been, but very few people actually produce content. I think that there's a fascination with not only the stories that people make, and I, I, I like to believe that all the art forms disseminate down to some type of narrative. I mean, so many things about human interaction are about story. And if you can find a common denominator, you can, no matter how you dress it up, you can start to approach a wider audience. So once we get down to story, we can start to build up from there. But it's not just about the fictional story of the thing you're making. It's not just about the content derived from intent, but it's about the story of the person who made that thing, who took that leap of faith and said, you know, not only do I have the means to say things, I, I kind of have this four-pronged approach. Um, the first is have something to say. You have to have opinions. You have to be aware. The second is that you have to have the means to say it. I think the point of entry has been lowered dramatically due to technology. You know, we all have laptops. We all think we're designers. We all think we're writers. Uh, so we all think we're writers. We think that we uh, we have something to communicate. But what we don't realize is that you actually need to clearly define your intent before you can derive content. So it's not just about the technical um, outcome or the technical devices that allow us to make things. It's the reason why we make them. So we end up kind of focusing on that quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to remember what the question was now. The artist is entrepreneur. Right. So as we start to embrace these technologies, um, there, there's so many things that uh, allow us to get beyond the dangling carrot of exposure. You know, the, the middlemen who used to kind of profit from creatives, uh, you know, still do to a certain degree, but you know, the, the agents, the producers, and everyone in between, um, we don't necessarily have to have them as part of the mix anymore. We have the ability through the technology to manifest nearly anything we can imagine. We have the ability through the internet and social media to um, disseminate that information and, and crowdsource and everything else. We have programs like Kickstarter that allow us to basically write our own job description and fund it. Um, I mean, that's, it's remarkable what's out there if you embrace the technology and the hard part is not getting consumed by it because it's such a time suck. You know, you end up getting, spending so much time on uh, social media or something of that nature that um, you're, you're pushing, pushing, pushing and you don't produce anymore. That's uh, kind of have to fall into these patterns. But um, the four things that I kind of start uh, telling students is, you know, first of all, you have to have something to say and, uh, you know, convincing them that they need to have opinions and they need to be aware is um, kind of an uphill battle sometimes. The second part is that you have to have the means to say it. And again, through technology, we have so many capabilities that we didn't have before. 
if you simply embrace them. But uh, I think that artists are particularly uh, well equipped to manifest things already. And uh, they don't need the technology. They, they choose to or, or not, but they have it within them to actually make things that people can see becomes another tool of communication. The third part is believing that you have something that others want to hear. And that's, I think, where the majority of creative people fail because we get into this whole self-doubt, self-loathing type of place where it's not good enough, it's not smart enough, no one's going to care about it. You know, it starts to sound like Stuart Smalley, right, from Saturday Night Live and Daily Affirmations. But it's um, this idea that you have to believe uh, that what you're doing matters and that it's significant. And if you're beat up too much by the idea that the arts don't matter, you got to get over that or you're going to fail. And the fourth part of that equation is that you have to do it. You actually have to go out and do it. You can't live in your head. You actually have to make it actionable. So um, that's the creation. That's getting over the, um, the pitfalls of, of being an artist. And you go through this entire uh, up and down kind of, again, self-doubt and, and motivation thing. It's just part of the ebb and flow of being a creative person. You can't be on all the time. You have to deplete uh, and, and purge at times and uh, then, then start doing. Um, but the artist as entrepreneur is the natural progression of where things are going. Because there are so many consumers in the world, you have to look at what's being consumed. And what's being consumed, uh, for the most part, at least in the Western, uh, the Western world, is entertainment. And what is entertainment? Entertainment is everything from the story of the thing that we create as a fiction, the story of how things were made, the story of the struggles that went into to overcoming the fears. Every single one of those, education can be entertainment, you know, and, and I think that people are really kind of grasping onto that as a reality. That's really interesting. So how does the art department play into all of this? Tell us, because you teach here at VCU, you're a fine artist, you're the father of one and another one on the way, and you do a bunch of other entrepreneurial things, but the art department is something that in, captured your imagination. So tell us about that program. Well, I'd be glad to. The art department is a, it's a really exciting thing to be a part of. Um, it was founded by John English. Uh, it grew up from a program called the Illustration Academy that I mentioned earlier. And the, the Illustration Academy was a nine-week program that, you know, I followed up, uh, went to VCU, followed up some years ago at that program, and it gave me such topical information directly from the leading practitioners in the world. I mentioned in your first question that uh, I was seeking out that pure information, and I found this article in Step-by-Step -Step Graphics, which is now Step Inside Design, and uh I saw this artwork and I was just blown away by it. I was like, wow, who are these uh, professionals that are doing this work? And I kind of dawned on me very quickly that these weren't professionals. This, this was the student work. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm so far behind. I, I got to go there. You know, I, I got to go and see if um, I am capable of producing on that level and try to see how good I actually am. And, uh, you know, when you're in school, you're, you're, pool is very small and you start to look around it's like yeah I've got some chops I can do this and you know you you start to kind of get a, a big head that way I think so I always encourage students to look at the industry and look at art history and it's a very humbling process very quickly um, so I went out there and I, I met just uh, illustration luminaries that are contemporary from 
Mark English to Gary Kelly to Anita Kuntz and Chris Payne, John English, uh, Malcolm Lipke, now known as Skip Lipke, uh, John Collier. I mean, the list, Jack Under, the, the list goes on. And it was the perfect place for me to go to study. And I am so thankful for that marriage of the Illustration Academy and VCU. It just it, it became a perfect complement to what I already knew and enhanced it, uh, supplemented it so well. So the art department is a reaction to the question that we had once I started teaching at the Illustration Academy, we noticed that like right around four weeks, we would have this significant life-altering impact on our students because it's completely immersive. It's, you know, all day. And when I was there, I mean, we were working till two, three, four in the morning every night for nine weeks. New instructor every week, new introduction to information. So the art department was the answer to the question, what happens if we ran this program year-round? not just four weeks. And it's grown up to become um, an accredited program. Uh, we're offering degrees now. We've just partnered with, uh, with Pixar. Um, we've got a lot of amazing things happening. I've got students who are, you know, in Russia and Sweden. I've got a guy who just traveled here from Sweden who's a phenomenal artist. I'm excited to learn with him, you know, but he's uh, here to kind of study in our Richmond location. And uh, those things are happening again and again. I think that Having the art department based here partially in Richmond, we've got other schools in uh, California and Kansas City. It just makes, it creates this magnet, um, just like the academy was for me. You want to go around the leading practitioners, you go where they live, you go study with them. And from that, these communities develop. And it's unlike anything that I've ever seen because you have all these people who are dedicated to art as a lifestyle, and you have all these aspiring students and other professionals or aspiring professionals who want to be a part of it, I'm embracing the Montessori type of model. Where you, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to know more than somebody else. And if you do that, you can help someone. And uh, so that's the entire idea behind the school. I got this, uh, we, we had the student who was, you know, I shouldn't even say this, but he was taking uh, online classes in his tank during drill in, in Vietnam, <laughs> wow. you know, while he was on drill. So, it, you know, I, uh, Vietnam. Oh my God. Yeah. So I asked him, uh, I said, can you turn on your camera? He's like, no, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we do these workshops twice a year too, which brings together our global community, you know, three weeks to six weeks at a time. And it takes it away from being just an online thing to um, an online and or uh, physical brick and mortar type of study. So you kind of get to choose what you want from it. So let's talk about who becomes an artist. Do you think someone is born to it with a talent or is it something that can be cultivated? That is a hot question there. Okay. Um, so I believe in talent. Uh, undeniably, I believe in talent. I believe, if not, I would be singing professionally. I would be a <laughs> professional musician, but I, I won't do that on the radio here. That would end badly. Um, but uh, I think that there's an idea that, you know, I, I can get the most talented student in the world who has nothing to say. Like, how do you define talent? Is it the facility? Is it the, the eye-hand coordination to draw, to paint? Um, or is it the idea that you have something to say? And I, I, I say this because we teach such a wide selection of students. You know, I'll get a talented student in who maybe gets a big head and all of a sudden they, they're, they're, they're too big uh, for their classmates and they don't work as hard. And all of a sudden, I get someone who is coming in who might have not have the technical facility, but they're exceptionally talented as a student. And I, I really think that how you define talent speaks volumes. So 
Um, I think that the way that we learn is a talent. So if you think about, well, I'm facilitated drawing and painting. Well, you learned that at some point. And, you know, maybe it wasn't innate from day one, but you absorbed it very quickly by what you saw and, and how you interpreted it. So I have a lot of students who are sponges who might not have that, you know, time invested for, for talent. Um, but at the same time, it's undeniable that there are people who excel at certain things that others do not. So let's not think of that as a weakness. Let's think of that as a strength. You just have to identify what your talent is. And the example I always use, this is kind of really dates me, but um, and it's, it's always, I, I say it kind of knowing that it's pretty lame, but I'm like, all right, so who's the better singer? Uh, is it Mariah Carey or Bob Dylan? And in the academic sense, you know, the students are like, well, Mariah Carey, right? And it's like, yeah, of course. And I didn't ask them who they prefer. So the next question is, yeah, but who's the better artist? And they think about a while for a little bit, and they say, well, Bob Dylan. It's like, okay, why? And I, I'm sure that someone will argue with me, but you know, the fact that Bob Dylan is writing his own content, the fact that Bob Dylan is matching the tone of what he's doing, the way that he's playing, where he's playing, his whole identity with this sound that academically, you couldn't say that that guy was encouraged from an early age to go out and sing. You know, people are like, you're going to do what? <laughs> right? Um, but he found a way, and I think that his story enhances his art so much. I mean, what a struggle it must have been for him to arrive at just this legendary place. But ultimately, because he embraced maybe, call it what you want, deficiencies, or um, it, it, it trumped up his, his, um, his passion, whatever it was, he has something to say, and I think that people really respond to that. So I can teach anyone as long as they come with an open mind. Closed mind is, is a really difficult student to try to interact with. I've had some that have gone on to do very good things, but they, they're they not going to get much from me, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I think it would be interesting, very interesting to be in your class, and we encourage people to check it out. So it's theartdepartment.org? Yes. And uh, just spell all spelled out. And I, I made the mistake earlier saying that it was all online. It, there are physical classrooms that you can Absolutely. sit in, but you can also study online. So that's that's fascinating. So last question for you: You started off as an illustrator. You you had tremendous success at, right out of the out of college, um, and then you got into fine art. What made you go from one to the other? How do you balance the two out now? Because you still do both, I understand. And um, which do you prefer? Uh, the, the truth is, it was uh, we produced a book uh, called Blue Collar, White Collar, which is a monograph, kind of collected the first pieces from my first gallery show, but majority of it was uh, an aggregate of my commercial illustration career. And I actually used that as a, a jumping off point where I stopped cold turkey doing illustration. I've done maybe two projects since then because they were appealing to me, um, but I left the industry. And it was a really terrifying thing to do. Um, but I feel like I had done everything more or less that I wanted to do. And, you know, this might sound uh, out of line, but I just, I was looking for a new challenge. And uh, I, I was seeking authorship. And I, I know that's kind of a, a word that's usually designated to writing, but I wanted to be at the inception of creation because that was always the thing that I loved about illustration so much was coming up with ideas and solving problems. The distinction lied in the fact that I was solving someone else's problems and I was reacting to a manuscript. In fine art, when it's personal, I look to myself as uh, the catalyst in the beginning, my own struggles, my own passions, 
more importantly, my own um, passions towards things that I, I'm resisting or pushing against. I think that that really hardens your resolve and helps you focus uh, your outcome. So um, I like the new challenges of, of, of looking at fine art as saying, okay, well, what are the limitations in illustration? And the limitations were a very healthy thing for me. Let me change directions and, and each piece I felt like was a sprint versus a marathon. Uh, and each piece pretty much lived and died within that single image, although I always had these kind of overarching um, ideas that I was trying to stitch together, right? And trying to form something new uh, through that interjection. But um, in painting, I, I have ample amounts of time and space, things I was very limited by in illustration. I didn't have to worry about the turn of a page or the passing of a billboard, um, and I didn't have to worry about um, you know, limitations on page size or anything like that. So it's just by default, its intent is to be an artifact, something that you actually react to in person. And people seek out paintings on their leisure time. Not, it's not pervasive the same way that illustration was. Um, given that and the nature that paintings live in people's homes or a museum or you know anywhere else, a, a corporation, wherever it might be shown, I feel like it needs to reveal itself in layers versus being so quick to kind of communicate. And as a result, I kind of come up with a theory that illustration answers a question while paintings ask a question. Mm -hmm. And in that space, you have time with a viewer where you can actually open up a dialogue that perpetuates either to the person or to the work and kind of back and forth. Wow, that is, that is really, really interesting. So where can people see your fine artwork? I just took down my uh, most recent show. This was Ghost Print Gallery here in Richmond. And, you know, I, I have ambitions of moving beyond being a regional painter. I think that Ghost Print does a phenomenal job of bringing in international artists. But because Richmond's my hometown, next logical steps are uh, New York, West Coast, Europe. Um, I'm on uh, leave from the university this semester to pursue those things. So I'm everything I'm talking to my students about with promotion and everything else I'm back to square one, basically, because I left that commercial career. And there's not much overlap as far as visibility and, and what I've done up to this point. So I'm starting from scratch, and I'm facing a major fear in my life. Um, but it's interesting to be able to bring that topical information back to my students. I'm uh, updating my – I've got two websites. There's sterlinghundley.com. There's sterlingclintonhundley.com. The second is going to be designated to my painting career. I'm uh, – creating a blog that's going to follow kind of my ups and downs in detail to starting fresh. And uh, I just see it as an educational opportunity for myself and for others to, who kind of aspire to um, do the same. Well, that's excellent. So that's Sterling Hundley, H-U-N-D-L-E-Y.com and Sterling Clinton Hundley.com. Uh, and we will look to uh, interview you again next year and see how far you've come. I'm sure you will find as much success in this new endeavor as you have in the past. I hope so. I'm terrified, but uh, I feel that all the moments of contentment in my life live on the heels of conquered fears. So uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it and excited to see what, uh, what comes of all this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thank you, Sterling. That's it for today's episode of Art 101, Artists on the Business of Art hosted by award-winning illustrator and designer Michael Gibbs. Be sure to check back next week on the Incandescent Radio Network for another interview with an artist in the know. Here's to living your dreams.